This podcast was recorded on January 9th, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Welcome to The Sherman Show. This will be episode two of season four. Uh, We're recording here in December, and I'm here with my co-host, Samuel Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have an interesting guest from down the street, right down here in downtown Los Angeles, Bill Hughes. Actually, Bill Hughes III, Managing Director from Colony Capital. Welcome, Bill. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. So, Bill, is this your first podcast? My first podcast. All right. So we'll be easy on you. So let's tell me a little bit about Colony Capital. Who who is Colony Capital and uh, what you guys do? Sure. So Colony is a real estate investment manager. We are kind of across the spectrum in terms of capital stack. So private equity, private credit, CMBS, and REITs. Okay. As a kid, were you thinking about real estate as investing or what brought you along that path? Tell us a little bit about how you landed at Colony. Yeah. As a, as a kid, I don't think any of this was in my crosshairs. And, and even when I got into finance, you know, I wasn't like from a family that was sort of channeling me in that direction. And uh, my first job out of college, I was like, a, you know, the junior most guy at Goldman Sachs doing investment banking stuff. And my grandmother was under the impression that I'd become an investment baker. Baker. Yeah. 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 So you Which I think inv- she was, you know, reasonably enthused about. <laughs> <laughs> so she thought you were going to come back and each day you're just working in the kitchen and investing in uh, new recipes? Yeah, or? it was unclear. A lot of things were kind of unclear for her at that time. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, where'd you go to school at? Chicago, University of Chicago. So let, let me get this right. So were you taught the uh, efficient market hypothesis and, um, you know, the guiding hand to the invisible hand of the market? You know, I, I don't think I was taught anything that had any practical value. So yes, but mostly it was, uh, you know, the in the economics department, we were kind of wandering around trying to figure out where two lines intersected, uh, solving for maximum happiness or something like that. It's always funny too, when you have uh, people with economics background, they love to do the hands when they're talking about the charts, right? And you got the X hand. Yeah, you didn't see that, but yeah. Yeah, he was he was putting the X's together with his arms, and uh, we do notice that too. It's that uh, supply, demand, utility, convexity, all that great stuff, right? Yeah, it's a it's a reflex you can't uh, decondition from. Right. I, I remember actually when I took my first microeconomics class that there was this woman in my class, and she had like all these different colored pens for all the different curves. And so when she's moving the supply the supply curve and demand curves, I was like. Dude, that's so awesome. But I was just more fascinated watching that than actually paying attention to what we were actually learning. So I was like, hey, that's actually a way of like animating it, right? So anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm easily amused, by the way. So you were investment baker for a while, you know, cooking stuff up. Uh, what got you into the real estate space? So I crossed over into the buy side. And over time, you know, on the buy side, you sort of pick a few fields that you sort of gravitate towards. And generally, it's kind of random in the sense that you start by investing in a bunch of different industries, and then you have some luck in one particular investment, and all of a sudden, you're an expert in that subfield. And so for me, it started narrowing to the TMT, real estate financial services, and over time, it sort of winnowed even further. And Um, what year was this? That was, you know, this is going way back. So this is like 
turn of the century. Okay. Wow. That makes it sound old. Nostalgic, right? Right. So so you transitioned from TMT. Was that tech media telecom? Is that what that used to stand for? Yeah, yeah. exactly. It doesn't now it's FANG, all this other, you know, fancy acronyms today. Right. I think it's all been reshuffled. Yeah. But so you transitioned now. Did you transition to real estate before the TMT debacle? Or was it a result of or coincidentally at the same time? So real estate became an increasing part of what I was doing when I had first moved to LA. I was working at Kane Anderson. Kane Anderson does, among other things energy and a significant part of the business is real estate. And so we were on the liquid side trying to invest in liquid opportunities where we were leveraging what we knew on the private side. Big so, MLP uh, issuer. MLP is their, their, big... is their uh, claim to fame for sure. Okay. So you were at Kane Anderson for a while and then, uh, then what happened from there? So I was on a, a tour of a nursery school in the Palisades. St. Matthew's Parish School, which is lovely. And um, small group, and one of my uh, compatriots on the group was Thomas Barrick. And so that was the first time I had met Tom and it was the start of what became a friendship first and, and, then, and then eventually a business partnership. Awesome. How was the conversation struck? Well, you know, I think that Tom and I always get along, have always gotten along. Our personalities are somewhat similar. And uh, I always use the expression, water seeks its own level. And so in the context of this tour, two people have to be kind of sitting at the back of the classroom making jokes. And I think those are uh, <laughs> the two of us in this case. So you guys were the class clowns. So to speak, yeah. Okay. So Thomas Barrick, you're, you're referring to, um, known as a, a pretty prominent real estate investor, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, among the four of us, between me, you, you guys, and Tom, one of us has had their picture on the cover of magazines and being declared the world's greatest real estate investor. Wasn't me. It was not it was me. Not, it was not yeah. me, actually. All right, well, there you go. So um, that's that's a great moniker to have. I, I, we have a gentleman in the office that I uh, just was talking to before he came down here who has a picture on a magazine that says the Bond King, too. So world's greatest investor, Bond Kings, you know, maybe they should hang out sometime. You guys headed towards see who's the cross-asset king? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Cross-asset czar? Or... <laughs> yeah, I think it needs to be alliterative. Although I guess uh, none of that's alliterative. But usually things in, in this business are alliterative or acronyms or something like that, right? But we'll, we'll work, think we'll about work that. On it. We'll, put, yeah. well, maybe over time... Uh, as we as we uh, do more stuff together, we'll talk about it. So let's talk about Colony and their ex- your expertise in real estate, both on the private and public side, and kind of what what's your day to day job? Yeah. So for the liquid securities team, which is my group, the real job is you sort of you're sort of a, like a like a conductor. You're trying to figure out amongst all the expertise and knowledge that we've got sitting in house, and we've got guys on the private side who are investing in all the different subsectors of real estate. And then we've also got credit guys who invest kind of across the real estate subsectors. So we've got the capital stack sort of up and down, but then the subsectors sort of sideways covered. And the bottom line is we're always scanning the public markets for things that look interesting. And then once you flag something that looks interesting, the next part of the job is, okay, who here knows something about this? Because someone knows something. And that's how and then, and, and so the, that, that cross section, those opportunities where, yes, this is interesting. And yes, we know a lot about the space are the areas where we try and focus our time on the active side of our job. Okay. So you talk about liquid securities. How is real estate liquid? Explain to our listeners out there sure. um, how, you know, I think of uh, real estate is usually one of the most painful transactions one goes through, right? 
from the day you sign the contract till you actually close on on the property. It's just it's time consuming. It doesn't seem very liquid. It takes a long time. And man, is it ever painful? There's and, and there's a lot of fees. So explain to me how you can take this into a li- liquid vehicle. Sure. Well, so take it from the top. Investing in real estate is a is a good thing to do. And and real estate typically produces really durable cash flows. And the and the cash flows from real estate tend not to have much correlation over time with other kinds of things you can invest in. And so you should be looking at ways, how can I invest in real estate? Well, if you wanted to create a diversified portfolio of high quality real estate investments, if you tried to do it directly, you would need to have several billion dollars at your disposal to kind of cobble that together. But if you can invest in real estate through securities called REITs, then you can do it very efficiently. REITs are basically stocks of companies that own portfolios of large, professionally managed, high quality real estate assets. So it's a fractional interest in a business that owns and operates big real estate assets. So when I think about REITs or real estate investment trust, right, that's the acronym REIT there. When I think about that, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about REITs, um, especially in the publicly traded space. Um, here we're sitting in our office in downtown Los Angeles. You, you guys are a couple blocks down the road and, and down a hill too. Uh, so thanks for making the, that climb up the hill to come see us. But uh, think about you know commercial real estate. I think about shopping malls. Is, is that all that really REITs are? Um, is there other ways? And we, you mentioned subsectors. Can you give us some examples of other things that would be in a REIT structure? So the big traditional categories of real estate ownership fall into REIT categories. So there are REITs that own office building. There are REITs that own apartment buildings. There are REITs that own shopping centers. And typically, a single REIT doesn't cross over those lines. It owns kind of one of those categories or the other. So they tend to be concentrated within one sector or are they really sector-focused as you're defining sectors here? Right. That's kind of the way the market has evolved over time. wasn't always that way, but that's where we are now. What I think is interesting and misunderstood about REITs is that REITs are the real assets that underpin the whole economy. It's not just the 70-year-old office building in midtown Manhattan, which is the kind of first you know image that pops into most people's heads when they think about REITs or real estate. It's a lot of other things. And increasingly, it's the real estate or the real assets that underpin the modern economy or the digital economy. So in looking at the REIT index that we've created, a third of it is composed of data centers and wireless towers and biotech labs and the e-commerce distribution networks that are supporting everything Amazon is doing, but increasingly everything that that like every company out there is doing. Wait, so, so how do you define this? So you just said cell towers, like cell phone towers. How is that a REIT? I mean, it doesn't sound like real estate to me. Um, how, how does that work? Physical asset, it's stationary, and you rent it out. And so in a large part, that meets the definition. So there are tests that the IRS will administer, but it's basically, a, you know, if you have a certain threshold of your earnings that come from basically renting out a physical asset that can't be moved around, you're, 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 you're getting there. 
Now, you you'd mentioned something here and you said you created a REIT index at Colony. Why would you create an index? Well, what was the motivation? You just bored one day? <laughs> um, what, what, what were you thinking about trying to create an index? Um, are you trying to get in the index business and you know, try to be this new index administrator? What, what was the thought process behind that? It was a confluence of, of a few different things. One is REITs and real estate are a terrifically inefficient corner of the market, which is interesting. In Especially from itself. a Chicago guy, right? Yes. Yeah, right. Okay. Secondly, within REITs, there's a huge acceptance of and, and a big market share for passive index type funds where they just own a market cap weighted basket of effectively every REIT out there. And from our perspective, we thought, geez, we can do better than that. And we can do better than that in a way that doesn't require us to be making tons and tons of decisions, right? We can do it in a systematic way. So we had this idea that there are a handful of kind of markers out there that identify, for example, quality signals in a REIT or, or are indicators of risk. And we felt like we could create something that was gonna systematically identify those, and then we could formulaically create a portfolio around that. So that was the general idea. The, the framework behind it was pretty simple. The REIT market in general makes a few broad mistakes and we felt like we could target that. And in general, what we're talking about is we think the REIT market doesn't appreciate the risks of leverage enough. We feel like the REIT market doesn't do a great job of differentiating between high quality and low quality assets. So we felt like if we could create a fund that really tried to exploit those inefficiencies of the market, we'd, we'd really have something interesting. Right. So. I mean, to summarize then, is it that you you taking your experience from both the private sector, what you've done as an active REIT manager, right, as well, and just said, look, there's a way to kind of write down and ascribe what you do in looking for these opportunity sets and create this systematic approach to investing? Yeah, and it, or a different way to, to frame it would be to say, we took the core lesson that Colony has learned over two and a half decades of doing this. Uh, across public and private stuff. And that is this, that quality real estate assets, conservatively financed, will will outperform over the long run. And so if you're investing in the REIT market through a market cap weighted index, you're necessarily owning some of the riskier guys and you're necessarily owning some of the low quality guys. And we just felt like if we could systematically screen those out, we were going to have something that was really good. Well, we've taken a look at it. I think it is quite interesting. And you know, I think one thing that kind of resonated with us is, is that focus on the risk side of the equation. So explain to me like wh- why there are these inherent risks inside of certain REIT structures that you're trying to exploit with this kind of systematic approach. Well, if you think about the way a REIT works, they are passed through structures. So part of being structured as a REIT means all of the earnings that you generate from being a REIT, you then dividend out to your shareholders. And as a uh, accommodation or a reward for using that construct, there's no corporate level taxation. So REITs are inherently tax efficient, but they're also a pass-through structure, you know, in some ways similar like a bond, and that creates a natural risk asymmetry. It's a lot easier for a REIT to have an event that drives it down 25% than to have an event that drives it up 25% in the short term. So that risk asymmetry 
drives you to a solution where you say, well, the way to outperform is to avoid the blowups. And that was the framework we were trying to apply. So were you reading double line marketing materials about avoiding, you know, the never crossing the double line of risk and, you know, risk avoidance and mitigants is that, or is this just uh, experience over the years that really led you to, to think about that? You know, I think it's drawing from personal experience, but also layering on, you know, the colony experience over a couple of decades, right? So some of these lessons are learned the hard way and some of these lessons are learned vicariously and uh, combining them gets you to the same place, right? The fundamental principle in all investing, I think, is avoiding risk, well, mitigating avoid, risk. Mitigating risk, not avoiding. We got to seek some. Kind right? of channeling yourself into a better risk reward scenario. So I have to say that, you know, before I started digging into the REIT world, I had this, I guess I'll call it a misconception. Um, maybe you think the same. But it always just seemed like people just bought this asset class because of yield. It's like, oh, if, if I want yield in the marketplace, I get it through REITs. Is that a misconception of a way to think about it, one? And then secondly, what should investors be thinking about with REIT investing? So to answer your question, is that the way people tend to approach investing in REITs? In a lot of cases, yes. And it's one of the inefficiencies that we're trying to go after when we invest in the REIT market because there's a certain amount of just blind yield-seeking behavior, but it's not the way to invest in REITs. You know, and I think the attraction of REITs as you're thinking about it from a top-down framework is the same as the attraction of investing in real estate, relatively uncorrelated to other things you can invest in. It's generating durable cash flows and it's, and it's, and it's giving you a, a nice current income stream from those cash flows. But REITs do retain, you know, some earnings and there's some compounding. So like in our index, for example, about half of what it's generated in returns on a historical basis come from the current income and the rest comes from price appreciation because there is some compounding. Right. So if I'm an investor that wants to invest in REITs, and uh, again, I think you're making the case it's a, it's a way of increasing one's real estate exposure without having to have this concentration. A lot of people's real estate exposure is in one item, right? Their home. So uh, how do I think about this of where this fits in an asset allocation framework? You said they, you've now described it as stocks, right? They're, they're publicly traded securities, but you mentioned something about bonds. Does it belong in a bond portfolio? Does it belong in a stock portfolio? Is it a different portfolio? Where do you where do you think about it as an asset allocator? Yeah, I think I think it's somewhere in between. I think that one thing that I probably have not emphasized enough in our conversation is that one of the core reasons to invest in real estate and to own REITs is that they generate good returns over time. If you own a good piece of real estate, it's going to generate good returns for you through the cycle and over the long run. And that fundamentally is the reason to own REITs. If you look at the earnings growth rate of REITs over a long period of time, it looks pretty good when you compare it to the S&P 500. Growth rates are somewhat similar, but REITs are going to do it with a lot less volatility in their cash flows. And that's appealing. And I think that's a reason to, to be thinking about REITs as additive to your investment framework. But in terms of the way people do it at a big picture level, guys who do... Uh, these big like asset allocation models, lots of them are doing, you know, for a sophisticated institution that's got the top-down model, a lot of guys come out in sort of the low double-digit range in terms of like what's an appropriate allocation to real estate. If you were to compare that to the S&P 500, the S&P 500 is something like two something percent real estate. So 
it's incumbent on an investor who wants a good diversified portfolio to sort of seek a specific real estate investment out. You mentioned the S&P 500. We run a strategy around here uh, through uh, a sector rotation strategy. So I recall that uh, about two years ago, the GICS methodology changed to include real estate and carve it out as its own sector of the market from the financials. It was historically embedded within the financials. Is that still appropriate to think about? Is that Do you think it's getting more of a limelight on REITs? Does that create more opportunity, less opportunity? Or is it just a reshuffling of the deck chairs along the ship? When the REIT subsector of the GICS classification system was created, there was a thinking that, oh, this is great. It's going to pull a lot of generalists into investing in REITs. And that was 2016. It really hasn't happened. And the reason it hasn't happened is investing in real estate comes with certain barriers to entry. They're somewhat artificial, but a lot of it's the jargon we use. A lot of it's that the accounting treatment is different. And a lot of it is that to really do well in real estate, there is a certain requirement that you have the ability to differentiate good from bad real estate. And without some expertise and without dedicating some time to it, uh, it's, it's easier said than done. And if I were to look at the CAPE index, for example, that you guys manage, it's looking at all these different sectors and, and garnering signals as to when to be in and when to be out. I'm not an expert on your index, but if I'm remembering right, like it's very rarely invested in, in real estate. It's very rarely picking up signals that now is the time to be in real estate. But you know, based on how real estate has performed over time, arguably... So it's you want to come, a, you wanna come on the Sherman Show and diss our products. I get it. I get it. That's fine. I mean, look, uh, we haven't had that position taken yet, so I like it. What do you think about that? Yeah, it probably won't be the last one, too, so we'll see how this goes. I, I, I we like start it. with friendly people, right? Now we're just bringing enemies <laughs> in. You know, They want to come in here and attack our product. No, let, let's, let's use the word uh, complimentary. Okay. We may have a complimentary uh, solution for you. So, Okay, so on that, since you use the word complimentary, I'll be complimentary of, of your index methodology and, and what you guys have developed over there. I think you, you've done a very interesting interesting way of approaching it. And I, I think what, what you're saying in this conversation, the way you described that before you just blatantly um, attacked, it's not our index either, by the way, I'll let you know, Bill, it's it's a, it's Professor Schiller's index, we just utilize it. <laughs> um, so we weren't smart enough to create it like you are. But you're talking about people not applying the right way of thinking about real estate, you talked about jargon. So what are some of the pitfalls that people do when thinking about real estate? Are they just applying their equity hat on? Um, they, they have their gap accounting and think about that? Because you mentioned that there's different ways of looking at it. What distinguishes the real estate and REIT market from actually, you know, kind of the traditional equity analysis that we learn at the University of Chicago or through a CFA program or the likes? So I think the easiest way to, to kind of explain that is look at what other quantitative guys have done when they've tried to approach the REIT market. And in many cases, they've tried to apply the traditional quantitative playbook that works really well across a lot of different types of industries. So we're thinking like pharma fringe kind of factors or quantitative factors, you know, decile ranking. Well, so here, here's a simple example. Traditional quant guy would look at a factor like price to book value as a signal of how cheap something is. Mm -hmm. In Reetland, all that's going to tell you is how old are the assets and, and, and how aggressive has the, the company been in depreciating them. In conventional quant investing, they might look at yield as a signal of value, right? Something that's got a, an attractive yield is cheap. Well, in, re, in, in read investing, what we've found is that high yields or yields above a certain threshold are an indicator of risk. 
you know, from a, a real estate perspective, you should think of high yield in the same way that you would think about it from a credit perspective. It's so like a bond, out. right? Like right. so higher yielding bonds typically have more risk, right? Right. Yeah. But interestingly, because real estate is sitting at this kind of intersection structurally between what a bond, how a bond works and how stock works, it sort of does double duty as a signal too. So on the one hand, it's telling you when the yields get to a certain level, you should be cautious. There's some, there's some risk here. But on the other hand, when guys are looking at it from sort of a stockholder perspective, higher yields tend to draw in a certain cohort of the investing public that is specifically just looking for a yield that's above X level and capital will get allocated to it simply because it is above X level. And so from our perspective, when we see a REIT with a yield above a certain threshold, we say, A, that's signaling risk to us and B, it's probably also overvalued because there's a certain amount of its ownership that is reflexively chasing it specifically because the yield is so high. Yeah, so I mean, we're talking about some of the parallels here between REITs and bonds and uh, equities. Another thing that uh, we've been concerned with from a corporate standpoint is leverage, leverage in um, you know high yield, leverage in investment grade corporates that we're looking at. How does leverage look today within the REIT structure? Yeah, so leverage is a very interesting signal in real estate, in that the way we and we've studied this for a while, leverage doesn't show up as a particularly determinative factor until you hit a certain threshold, in which case it is really risky. So just to give you some uh, context, if you invested in the index that we designed uh, 15 years ago, you have compounded it about 11% per year, works out to about a four bagger over the time frame. If instead at the outset, you'd said, I'm going to invest in the 10% most leveraged REITs because it's going to get me great real estate exposure with a little extra juice. At the end of the period, you'd have about 75 cents of your dollar. Doesn't sound good. Yeah. And th the framework is pretty simple, right? Leverage can be risky. We all know that. For REITs, leverage can be particularly risky because the nature of a pass-through security is such that it's very tough for a REIT to delever. And so if you're carrying that high leverage, that can be good for some period of time, but inevitably you're going to go through some economic cycles. And if you're a REIT and you can't delever very easily and you're holding too much leverage and you go into an economic downturn, that is where you get in trouble. Right. So, so you guys put together this index uh, to try to, you know, kind of monetize these principles or at least, you know, give you these pre-described rules. How does it work? So at a basic level, Simple for our listeners here that are just learning about REITs today. How, how does that actually, how, how do you go through this process? All right. So the simplest way to think about it is we took the what we consider to be sort of the investable REIT universe. So REIT stocks that have a billion dollars of market cap and a certain threshold of sort of daily trading volume and started to screen for things that we think are interesting or screen for what we consider to be either fact, uh, markers of risk or markers of quality. And so what we're looking to do in applying these screens is get rid of the REITs that have too much leverage, get rid of the REITs that have too high a yield, and focus on the REITs that have higher margins and attractive valuations. So when you, when you look at that, how does that compare to the traditional REIT indices that are out there or the ETFs and products that are available today? What is the key differentiator here? In ours, you're, you're really only owning about half of that universe, and the difference is, is a big deal. So uh, when we've mapped it out over time, the index itself outperforms the names that get kicked 
out of the index by about 6% per year. And then if you were to compare it against what if I just own the whole universe? Well, the read index is about half the universe and the kicked out guys are about the other half. So, so let, let me say, if you outperform by at six per year, you give about 3% more than the market. And that's why you have a degree in mathematics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's not why, but uh, may, maybe that's what I learned along the way though too. But yeah, very good. So I guess a question too, when you talk about products and, and investing in REITs, like, so is this like a complementary strategy to existing REIT holdings? Do you view it as a replacement? Do you want to take over the world with this colony index? Well, I mean, or- I, we, we think we've built a better mousetrap here. We think you can get better returns and still have plenty of uh, liquidity. And so my view is you wouldn't want to invest in something else if you could invest in this. Wow. That's bold, yeah. That's a pretty solid recommendation, I'd say. So you're talking a little bit about the universe. What is the addressable universe in terms of size of, of the market? Yeah, so the whole REIT market is uh, $1.1 trillion of market cap. In terms of number of stocks, for our purposes, we the Billion Dollar Plus Club is uh, 135, 140 names, uh, depending on the day and date. Um, and then we whittle it down to about half that group for our actual index. So there's no mortgage REITs in here too, which is simply levered kind of bond plays, right? We're screening out the credit REITs uh, simply because th- that is a different model entirely. And and the, so this, and the rules don't quite... Right, because then you get into bond math and again, uh, start thinking about the, the differences there, right? Yeah. So the REITs that we're investing in own these assets, right? And uh, credit REITs or mortgage REITs own a portfolio of loans, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, we invest pretty heavily in, in, in securitized debt around here. And, you know, we we obviously know you guys from your issuance of CMBS securities and like. And I, I've seen charts over the last few years where people have been, you know, warning of the dangers of the commercial real estate market, CRE and CMBS, which we don't necessarily agree with. But they, they trump out, they troll out this chart that shows all of a sudden that if you if you kind of index this to the peak in real estate in the residential side that the you know the recovery since post financial crisis in commercial real estate is like astronomical levels like when you when you pull up the chart i mean you've seen that too yeah. sam right and so what do you think about the valuation of reits like we're talking about real estate but then all of a sudden you bring up these data centers and warehouses I don't think that's in the CRE calculation, is it? I mean, yeah, I don't buy that that construct or that argument at all. I think I'm kind of more with you guys uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, starting with REITs, if you look at REITs, I mean, right now REITs as a group have less leverage than they've ever had. So in my view, they're about as low risk as as they've been. They are trading as a group at a pretty healthy discount to their private market values, which I think is an interesting element of the REIT story right now. So and which way is that? Is that the REITs are cheap or the private market's a little overvalued well, or it, some combination of the yeah, two? Yeah, we'll find out over the next coming years. But what's interesting is uh, you've got the public securities trading at a discount to their theoretical private market value and the private market sitting on as much cash to be put to work in real estate private equity as ever has there been. And so it seems to me like something's got to give there, or at least that you've got a, an interesting setup for some future take private type M&A in Reetland. And we've start, started to see the beginnings of that, I think, this year. So is that your targeted audience who you want to sell this uh, REIT index to? Is that that pool of capital that's just sitting on the sidelines waiting to be deployed on the private side? Or? I, you know, I don't know about that. I think uh, our focus here is 
real estate's a good play for the long term and own it and 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 own it through the cycles and you'll be happy. So I think you've talked to, you know a couple, about a couple of things on why this index could outperform REITs in general, REIT indices in general. But in terms of overall weakness of the market, what would be some of the risks that you could foresee coming up for the REIT? Just market? for the performance of the REIT market in general, I mean, is the economic strength is that a is know, it, something is where it we yield curve inversion happening? Correct. Is that going to affect? Is that portending some crisis in REIT land? I mean, are there any indicators that our listeners can say to say, hey, maybe here's some flashing signs about REITs? I think the the you know REITs are the real assets underneath our economy, and so to the extent that our economy has risks, and so too do the these businesses that are renting out the assets that the economy runs on. The good news uh, is that REITs, certainly relative to popular perception, have a huge percentage of what they are. And in our index, it's 34% right now, where the drivers, uh, in my view, are less economically sensitive and more being driven by secular forces that are at play. And what I'm talking about there is growth of mobile communications, growth of data in general, growth of biotechnology, growth of e-commerce and growth of uh, distribution, e-commerce distribution platforms. So uh, the REIT story is, uh, you know, similar to the story of the economy in general, but I feel like the underappreciated elements are, one, it's it's more sort of secular growth than is commonly understood, and two, REITs in general, going back over a long time frame, have less sensitivity in terms of their cash flows. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you make some very compelling points too. It sounds like it's a pretty attractive opportunity set to be in the public part of the REIT market today. It's a way for people who don't have that billions of dollars, as you mentioned, to build these diversified portfolios. But more importantly, it sounds like it's a little underowned by people in the marketplace. It's massively underowned from what we can tell. And uh, I, I think that's a very interesting part of the opportunity set here. Speaking of underowned, I mean, we have uh, some you know commodity strategies here, and one of the common questions I get from you know people out there is what type of positioning should this occupy within the portfolio? I mean, if you most people, if you think that most people think of the construct of their portfolio as sixty percent, forty percent, you know, equities, uh, fixed income, where does this fit? The big guys would tell you uh, the big asset allocator models are coming in ten to fifteen percent real estate exposure. Where does that come from? Kind of come out of uh, as a part. So, we're, we're, so they, I think what Sam's asking is, if you have the sixty forty, how do you fund the fifteen percent or the ten? Where, where it yeah, comes from? Yeah. Arguably, if if you take my construct that this thing is sitting somewhere in between in terms of the way it behaves in terms of its structural characteristics, you, a little of both. Right. So you take uh, so on the sixty forty, you take ten percent, you take six percent from stocks and four percent from bonds, and keep yourself the same. That would do it. All right. Well, Although, uh, don't we have to reserve a little space for your commodities? commodities. Oh, oh, man, wow. I forgot about that. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, yeah. So yeah, the 60-40 portfolio is changing all the time. So, uh, um, But again, it's, it's been tough to beat those 60-40 portfolios lately for a lot of people out there. Um, just again, the 60 sides work pretty dang well yeah, as of late, so but it sounds like- 100% portfolios, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why even own the bonds at all, right? Okay. Well, uh, anything else you want to tell us about this uh, colony uh, REIT index that you've created or uh, while we have our listeners still on the hook here before we get into Sam's favorite part of the show? 
No, I can't wait for Sam's part of the favorite part of the show. <laughs> okay, that's that's the whole reason you've been sitting here the whole time, right? That's right. All right, so Sam, it's your turn. Um, why don't you let Bill have it? Sherman says, and for those of you that don't know, I give a, a term and I expect a response in the form of maybe a one-word response from, from each one of you. And I alternate between Mr. Sherman and Mr. Hughes. So starting with Mr. Sherman, OPEC. I have no thoughts of OPEC. How about that? All right. I don't like them. Mr. Hughes the third, nickname. My nickname? Yeah. Oh. Well, so the William F. Hughes. Yeah, third. so uh, <laughs> most people call me Bill. So yeah, but I am the third. And so when I was growing up, my grandfather was Bill, and then my dad was Billy, which made me Little Billy. All right, Little Billy, I yeah, like it. And you would like Billy. Little Billy. And you would think I would get promoted over time, but for some of my relatives, that no. Brother and Hillbilly. You, you have you have a you have a kid, right? So do you have a son? I do. Yeah. Yeah. So do we have a fourth here? No, no. Uh, so he's a Teddy. You, te- teddy. So he's just big Teddy. Yeah, but we're like a typical Irish family. We recycle about six or seven boy names, and that's about all we use. So there's a you're either going to be Billy, uh, Teddy, Bobby, John, or Patrick. Okay, that, that seems that seems pretty Irish. Yeah, yeah. you never guess my nickname, Sherman. Okay, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Hikes in 2019. <laughs> Market says zero. <laughs> Recession. Someday. Budget deficit. Exploding. Populism. Growing. U.S. dollar. Peaking. Brexit. Eventually. (laughs) Investor sentiment. Confused. China. Long-term, I think it's a question. I don't know. That, that's the big question. Is China a long-term adversary or ally? I have no idea. I was just like you were saying, long-term, there may not be a China. That's no, why I, I think I'm no. pretty sure they have that, some durability there. Yeah, they got a lot of longevity. They got a long history there. Yeah, but I don't know which way that would break. I mean, to me, I guess, uh, here's a long-winded stream of consciousness answer. But I mean, it feels like we have to make it work. The long run history would tell you we have to fight, but I feel like we should try and forestall that as long as possible. Yeah, well, markets like peace. So, um, I mean, that Sam's phrase all year he's been telling me is trade peace, trade peace, trade peace. I thought that that dinner together with uh, Xi Jinping and uh, President Trump was trade peace. Sure didn't look like it after they left. So, um, I think we got to stop, uh, you know, focusing on um, these. Uh, Ah, whatever. I'm gonna stop there. These dinners are dangerous. These dinners that? are dangerous. Just like a business dinner, they're always dangerous. There's more downside than upside. So caveat emptor whenever you have dinner with someone. So the next and final for each one of you for Sherman, electric vehicles. It's annoying. And why I'm gonna say that is because I was walking in the parking garage the other day. This guy hit by one because I couldn't hear couldn't it. Couldn't hear it? Right. So I think we need to go, if we're going to use electric vehicles, we need to go old school on them and tape baseball cards to them to make the sound for when the wheels are going around. Right. <laughs> so spokes I need them. to get something in there, put some Dayton's on it, put a put a, ba- ba- a baseball card in there and like, because I can't hear it. And uh, again, I was not on my phone. I was just simply walking in to try to come in the office. So don't blame the cell phone for that either. And again, I think that they're interesting. They're cool. However, I'm concerned about the noise. Walking is dangerous too, I guess. So, 
And then uh, on the topic of things that annoy Sherman, the last one goes to uh, Lil Billy. Fleece uh, vest. I think I've got too much market share now. So we're shorting fleece vest around here. A double line sounds like Colony has a similar view right now, right? Yeah, you see yeah. too many of them. It's oversupplied, way oversupplied and, and over-admired. And yeah, anyway, this is a recurring theme we have on the Sherman shit right now. My disdain for these fleece vests. So thanks for not showing up in one today. Yeah. But anyway, thanks, Bill. Uh, we've been talking with Bill Hughes here, managing director uh, over at Colony Capital, uh, creator of the, the, what is it, the official name is the Colony Capital Fundamental U.S. Real Estate Index, coming to theaters near you soon. Right, Bill? You know it. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is The Sherman Show. Uh, you can catch us at DoubleLine.com. Download The Sherman Show there, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, probably 14 other apps I don't know about. Uh, but again, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back soon uh, with more Sherman Show near you. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, Double Line Capital.